Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm very, very excited today. And let me tell you something. I am so glad that my guest is here who I'm with. And I'm going to just tell you why I'm glad he's here. My guest, uh, Dan Pasternak, who I will give a proper introduction to in a second. I want to share with all of you how amazing this guy is. Okay. Now, I consider myself to be somebody who is highly organized, does things in a certain way, and I normally, in a nice way, with a smile on my face, get disappointed when things don't go right. And sometimes uh, the biggest thing is if you're a major league pitcher or in little league, they tell your kids when they're pitching, if somebody hits something off you, never let them see you sweat. And... I set up things with Dan to come into my room here at the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. He was the one guy out of everybody that was just really, really on it. He he got his times right, worked with my assistant, did everything, put everything together. He sent me stuff, clips of himself with people like Milton Berle and Jonathan Winters, just incredible stuff on top of everything. And so here I am, I'm working with a guy who's on top of everything. And he gets, you know, I get an email this morning, 11, is this still on? And I'm like, oh my God. 
uh, some my first thing has gone wrong. So I get back to him. I send him the details that I sent them the day before. That for some reason, I guess my Rogers internet when I'm outside doesn't work as well. And I didn't BC my I didn't BC see myself, which I normally do in important emails just to make sure it went through. So if it gets back to me, that way I know it got to my person. But I didn't do it. I'm at some show, whatever. So I make my first mistake. So I create a situation where he wakes up this morning. I'm not saying that he's stressed. I'm not saying that because he's not stressed. But what I'm saying is I created a little bit of a negative problem. So then I email him back. I say, oh, my God, I'm sorry. I'll find the confirmation. I sent it to him and uh, asked him if he was all set. And at about 1120, he says, I'm all set. I said, great. My guys are here. They just called me. We're all set. Whatever. My guys don't show up in the room. I get these frantic texts that says our camera equipment and everything was stolen out of our trunk. I'm like, oh, that's horrible. And as I'm saying that's horrible, I'm realizing to myself, that's also horrible for me. <laughs> Because I have now lost video footage of interviews that I've done so far that I worked really hard on putting together and they worked really hard on recording and did such a great job. Now I have the audio recordings, which are fine, but it's just highly disappointing. And then Dan walks in the room one minute later and he's ready to go, but because he didn't get my confirmation email, doesn't have any morning coffee that he was supposed to have that I wanted to have for him. Still doesn't have a water because I were running late and I gave my guys some money to get. You know what? Water. Fuck this. <laughs> Fantastic. Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that was an incredible commitment. He just walked out of the room. I really did not know that he left or not left. <laughs> and so here he is, you know, and, and then we get started about, you know, 20 minutes late, which I feel horrible about. And but it's weird. And I told him I wasn't going to do a cold open. And now I find myself doing the cold open. <laughs> and you know why I find myself doing a cold open? I find myself doing a cold open because I feel like I, when I started, when, right when he walked in, right before he walked in, I got the equivalent of basically getting mugged and punched in the gut and really, really damaged by something that was in my control and then something that was out of my control. And the reason why I want to bring this up is because if you're a great artist or a great executive, there's two things at play and they're always having to do with how you navigate and your skill set and your desire to do great work. And so you could do the greatest work in the world as a executive or an artist, but if you don't know how to handle the things that don't always go your way, then you're going to be taken down. And so 
What was interesting about today is when I got that call right before Dan came in that everything was stolen, I was like, my stomach was almost like demoralized and anxious. My mind was demoralized. And he walked in with such an amazing, calm energy, knowing that there was no cameraman here. He had no coffee. There's no water here. And we weren't starting at the time that he wanted to start. And he didn't get an email confirmation about what was happening. Yet he came in and he made me feel safe. He came in and took the pressure off me. And instead of feeling anxious and sad or depressed about things right now, I feel great about the interview that's about to take place. And normally I would tell a story that involves things that happened long ago with a person that I interview that has a, a six degrees of separation from what they're doing. But today, for you listening, today was a moment that I will honestly never forget in my career because you always want calm around you. You always want in this crazy business. Um, there was a quote that was told many times to me, but by a former person that I worked with who studied all the Batman movies and he used it about Hollywood and he said, decent people shouldn't live here. And Hollywood and what happens here is very hard and very challenging. And the hope for you as an artist or an executive or whatever profession you're in is wherever you go, you want to be working with people who make you feel like a million bucks, who empower you, who treat you like you're somebody even before you are somebody. And Dan Pasternak is that guy. And if there's any example I can give to anyone in the audience is that there's going to be things that happen in your career that are really rough things that happen. I talked about on the Kent Alterman podcast, you know, Louis C.K., Dave Attell, these guys all failed on their first things. Dave Chappelle had seven pilots in eight years. And then five years after that, the Chappelle show happened. There's executives like Kevin Riley, who basically went to NBC and had six shows that were hits and then got a pink slip from the network and said, you know, thanks a lot, pal. But, uh, you know, we're going to go in a different direction. And if you have the ability to stay calm in situations where things aren't going your way, whether they're in your control or out of your control, you're going to take your career to the next level. And when I sit across from Dan Pasternak, I'm looking across from a guy who took things to the next level and he is a model of everything 
profits great in this business. And so wherever you are in any job, just know that in adversity, keep your cool and just keep doing great work. And people will forget about the thing that went wrong early on. If at the end of what you do, you blow people away. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. My guest today... I am so, so happy and excited that he's here. I'm going to give him a proper introduction. It's going to be long. He may, may slip into a coma, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to do it anyway. I may get some things wrong, but if I do, that's what editing is for, assuming we will have equipment to edit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dan Pasternak, as of Monday is the head of Big Beach TV. Unbelievable. I got you right at the beginning. A veteran TV producer and creative executive, Dan Pasternak, has joined the prestigious independent production company to set up and head up a new television division called Big Beach TV. Uh, If you don't know this company, uh, maybe you've heard of a few uh, movies, uh, little things called Little Miss Sunshine, Our Idiot Brother, Sunshine Cleaning, Jack Goes Boating, and Sherry Baby. Uh, They're looking to move into developing and producing scripted hours and half hours, and he is going to be the man to do it. He just left his position where he was 
a guy who a go-to guy for everybody in the business who loved dealing with him at IFC, where he was the vice president of development and production. And he left there after four and a half years. And during his tenure at IFC, he basically, in my humble opinion, changed the face of the network, shepherding the breakout hit Portlandia from web series to Emmy, Peabody, and Writers Guild award-winning television sensation. Incredible. He also oversaw the development of comedy Bang Bang, starring Scott Ackerman and Reggie Watts, the birthday boys from executive producer Bob Odenkirk, and the Spoils of Babylon, starring Tobey Maguire, Kristen Wiig, and Tim Robbins. Hacks. Prior to his tenure at IFC, Mr. Pasternak held a variety of creative executive positions, including roles at Turner Broadcasting, Carsey Werner, Studios USA, which is now NBC Universal, Granada Entertainment USA, and the Fred Silverman Company. In addition, Mr. Pasternak also served as co-producer on the Showtime series Beggars and Choosers and executive producer on the Showtime sketch comedy pilot The Offensive Show. The FX series Star, the Fox Network pilot Francis and Angela, and the Star series Gravity, on which he served as a writer and executive producer. He began his career as a writer and stand-up comedian in Los Angeles. Before that, he's going to talk about it. He has some Dr. Demento stories from when he was 11 years old. And uh, since 1996, he's donated his time to the TV Academy on their Archive of America television project, which he helped to originate and initiate. And he's conducted on-camera interviews, which are absolutely amazing that you have to look up and see with some of the greatest people in the business, including Milton Berle, Sid Caesar, Jonathan Winters, and Bob Newhart. He's also written articles for Emmy Magazine, one of the earliest regular contributing bloggers to the Huffington Post. Wow. Please welcome my guest today, the man, the calm one, the funny one, the guy who made me feel like a million bucks today, Dan Pasternak. Thank you, Barry. Thank you for having me in your room. It's uh, <laughs> not quite as creepy as I thought it would be, so I, I appreciate it. Well, it's a little creepy. It's a little small <laughs> here. We have a guy who uh, who is, is recording us. It's a little weird, and uh, who I gave him a twenty-two, and he's pocketed it, and he's never going to get any change or any money for our uh, for our waters, which is sad. And he's basically saying, "Hey, listen, I'm a cameraman. I'm not a fucking water boy, okay?" Dude, he just lost his gear. Can you give the guy twenty bucks? Jesus Christ, Barry. I did. I should have told him to keep the change. What happened? I just got called a Jew bastard by Dan (laughs) Pasternak. This is a first on my podcast, and I'm laughing about it. And it won't be a last. And it won't be the last. Lenny Clark used to call me a Jew bastard. So uh, from Rescue Me. Um, (laughs) So Dan, what I like to do to start off these podcasts is I love to uh, go way, way back, and you are going to have one of the most amazing way, way backs of all time because the thing that you guys don't really know and maybe wasn't clear in in the intro is the fact that Dan is one of the few guys uh, out there who's working in television uh, that's on the other side that actually started as a performer, uh, started as a stand-up. It's actually started, you could say, in break on radio, then 
started as a stand-up doing stand-up, then did interviews on camera and behind the scenes as well with big, big stars, and then became an executive putting stuff with artists on television. So he's done it all, and he's been a part of everything, and it's going to be very insightful. But please take us back to the beginning, right before you had the first inkling of ever doing anything ever in the business, and what was the inspiration? And how did you grow up? Where where was it all? And, and take us through it. Sure. Um, well, I always like to say I had geography on my side because I grew up in L.A. And um, so if you have dreams to do this, um, you know, I, I always admire the people who come from, you know, far flung locales that um, where it just it isn't in your backyard. It was in my backyard. I mean, I didn't have family in the business or anything. You know, my my mom worked in retail and in clothing manufacturing for a time. My dad was a CPA, but I grew up in West L.A. And, uh, you know, I always loved this stuff. And uh, I was an insomniac when I was a kid. So I watched TV until the wee 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 hours. I mean, my parents would put me to bed. And I'd wake up and I'd sneak into the living room and I'd watch KTLA movies till dawn, which I always say was kind of my first film school. So, you know, by the time I was seven, eight years old, you know, all those old movies used to run. So I'd seen all the, you know, Marx Brothers movies and, you know, Jerry Lewis and uh, just, you know, uh, and of course, grew up loving Warner Brothers cartoons. And I would say the the two characters that helped form my personality more than anything were Groucho Marx and Bugs Bunny, who were both anarchists. And so <laughs> they were. And it really, uh, you know, those personalities appealed to me. And I think it helped to form a little bit of a, you know, wise ass uh kind of sensibility, comic sensibility that uh, I felt kind of resonated with me. But anyway, all of this stuff was in my backyard and I was immediately attracted to it when I was a kid. I, 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 you know, I wasn't sure exactly what role I wanted to play, but I wanted in, you know, and when I was nine, 10 years old, there was a radio show. It was on in L.A. and it was it originated from L.A., but it was also at that point nationally syndicated called the Dr. Demento show. Of course. And, uh, you know, something I, I, I have never talked about the Dr. Demento show on this uh, podcast. So this is really, and it was a big part of my life too, growing up. Really? Yeah. So just to share about what the Dr. Demento show is, because I don't think it's on anymore, is it? It is on the internet. If you go to drdemento.com, I don't mind plugging the guy. He's still, you know, to me, one of these great, important figures in my life. Go to drdemento.com and you can find out who he is and what he does. And he still does his show online. Uh, but it was a radio show that was, <clears throat> excuse me, it was comedy and novelty records and it was contemporary stuff and it was stuff from the history of comedy. Um, so you could really, you know, I learned about, you know, Cheech and Chong and George Carlin and going back Stan Freeberg and uh, Spike Jones and uh, Tom Lehrer and all these amazing, brilliant, brilliant minds. And Dr. Domeno, around the time I was listening to him, broke a guy that no one had ever heard of before who was an architecture student at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo named Weird Al Yankovic. And he was responsible for introducing the world to Weird Al Yankovic. He discovered Weird Al. And when I was growing up, his radio show was 
huge. It was on KMET, which was one of the premier rock stations in LA. And Sunday nights from 6 to 10 p.m., they turned over their airwaves to this madman who uh, just had the most expansive collection of funny music and funny recordings from the history of recordings going back to the days of 78 records and Edison records and just anything that had ever been recorded that was funny, he put out there. And he's then for those of you who don't know, this is what was amazing at the time. Obviously, it's hard to realize or even think that that's somebody could have something that you know right now everything's accessible but back then when we were listening you know we had three television channels and maybe a couple of UHF channels and the radio what we really had was album oriented rock on FM a few stations and AM uh, radio which was just a top 40 hits and talk you know and it was just a thing where so this this thing that this man created was there was nothing like it in the history of of broadcasting and it was so different and so uniquely uh, off the radar and off the chart. It was something that... Oh, it, it was going through the looking glass. It was absolutely... And, and the Dr. Nemeno show was Wonderland. And you were right. You couldn't get what he was doing anywhere else but from him. And I was, I was hooked immediately. So I was a fan as much as anything. And I was, you know, as a kid, I was nine, 10, 11 years old. And when I was in the sixth grade, I was 11 years old. <clears throat> he did a live broadcast as he would do from time to time from tower records on sunset Boulevard. Again, geography, the famous I, tower records, which is no longer there anymore. Sadly. Yeah. Uh, it was an institution in LA, you know, right on the sunset strip. And, um, so my, parents went and dropped me off there. And, you know, I was just this rabid fan who was at this broadcast and wound up talking to various members of his cast and getting to meet him. Well, he put me on the air. He, um, interviewed me on the air. I sang a song on the show at 11 years old, at 11 years old. What song did you sing? Uh, I sang uh, the Spike Jones song, You Want to Buy a Bunny. Um, do you want to do the first verse for it? Uh, you know what? Uh, I mean, if I could get into that. George Rock was famous for singing. He was this huge guy who sang in a voice that sounded like <clears throat> it emanated from, you know, a six-year-old kid. And so uh, he famously also did All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth. <laughs> so if you know that song and you know that voice, Vocal that was from this giant of a man that was in the Spike Jones Orchestra. Um, anyway, I sang it in that very high range because at 11 years old that wasn't a stretch for me. Uh -huh. um, on a good day, it would be a stretch for me. On today, um, it would be physiologically impossible. Well, I know you're still waiting for your voice to change. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know what I'm waiting for it to change into, but something. Other you know things. what's also uh, great about that story is like, and again, for those of you who don't realize it, now, if you find out about something, you'll get an email in your box or there'll be a mass thing that goes out digitally or there's all these places where you can find out about something. Dan's 11 years old. How does he find out about Dr. Demento? Word of mouth. Mm -hmm. That's it. And you know what's 
no matter what anybody tells me, because when I was when I was in Boston, Aerosmith had an apartment down the street from me on Commonwealth Avenue, and there was no internet, and their word of mouth was going into Harvard Square and passing out flyers, and they would print them up at CopuPrint uh, on, on, on Commonwealth Avenue or Beacon Street or wherever it was, and they just pass out the flyers, and, and then when people saw them, they would tell 10 of their friends, and then 10 would tell 100, and that's how Dr. Demento got popular, because there was no... There was no advertising. There was nothing, and so you were telling all of your friends and your friend, you know, and and that's how you heard in school. Some kid in the hallway said you should listen to Doctor Demento. Oh yeah, what we would do is we would record his show on cassette tape, and then you would trade those cassette tapes with people. I mean, it was currency when I was a kid. So so anyway, after I made this this first appearance, um, I wasn't just completely inspired, and I would write funny songs from time to time. And um, all I knew is that his was a club that I wanted, if not to actually get into and be a part of, at least gain entry and get to hang out and be around these crazy, funny, smart, amazing people. I've just always been attracted like I'm off to flame to the smartest, funniest people in the world. And that's really you know, as much as anything, I come to this as a fan, you know? And so I worked that summer at my mom's factory. She had a clothing manufacturing company and she just, you know, paid me out of petty cash, like $3 an hour to, you know, build boxes that she was packing boxes with the clothes they were manufacturing and her clothes, uh, the clothes uh, that they were manufacturing at the factory rather. And I made enough money to, and then I researched, you know, I mean, literally there was no internet. So you go to the yellow pages and you find a place that presses records. And one of the guys from the Domeno crew offered to uh, record two songs for me. I found a place to press 500 uh, 45s. Um, I made the money at my mom's factory. Ah, forty-fives. What he means is the. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who are, are listening that are a little younger, um, we had the uh, forty-fives that we played on our record players. That were these little singles that had an A and B side. So just so for those of you listening that don't remember that, I just want to share that. You, you are the master footnoter, Barry Gatz. You are. I'm trying. So anyway, I made the money, pressed the records, sent one to Dr. Domeno, hoping maybe he'd play it once. So now, that, did you send a note so he would remember who you were? Yeah, I mean, I had stayed in touch, and, and frankly, I, I was probably more of a pest to him and you know the people in his show uh, because you know I called the show all the time, you know, called the request line and like talked to everybody there, so they knew who I was. Um, you know, I'm uh, you know I'm guessing I was probably a bit even infamous at that time because I was this 11 year old rabid fan, but I sent the record and. And uh, in October of that year, he did another live appearance at the L.A. County Fair in Pomona. And he said, you should come on down and I'll play the record and I'll interview you again on the air. So I went to this live broadcast. And I remember it was my dad's birthday and my parents, you know, I was really blessed with really supportive parents. And it was my dad's birthday and they took me to the L.A. County Fair in Pomona uh, Dr. Demento played the record. Uh, three weeks later, it made its debut on the Dr. Demento Top 10. And I'd say a half a dozen times over the next year, it was in the Dr. Demento Top 10. And 
I was hooked. It was a drug and I was hooked. And I knew that somehow, some way having a creative life in some form or fashion was going to be my, was going to be my life. Now, did you continue? Now, this particular thing that you gave him, was it similar to the thing you sang at Tower or was it a completely different thing that you sent him? And tell us what was the content of the <laughs> song that, that made it so popular? Um, well, you know, when you're starting out as a creative person, you're an appropriator as much as anything. And there was a, a, a big hit song uh, that uh, Benny Bell had recorded back in the 20s or 30s. He was a Yiddish comedian, and uh, he had done the song Shaving Cream. Uh, shaving cream, be nice and clean, shave every day, and you'll always look keen. I remember that. Um, and the hook of the song was that he almost said shit, and then it it, it he did the left turn, it became shaving cream. So uh, it, uh, you know, the thrill of that song was that someone almost said something dirty. So my song was uh, a lyric where um, uh, I would do something, a very simplistic sort of rhyme, and you get to the end and it's a reversal. So it was like, uh, you know, Rick, Rick, Rick learned a trick, trick, trick. He thought it was slick, 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 but actually he's a pretty good magician. Um, and so it was that, and it was, you know, however many you know, versions of that inside a song. And what's interesting comedically, if you don't mind me talking about it, which happens oftentimes in comedy is that you saw a formula that worked and you looked at that formula worked and then you wrote your own content using that formula. It's like every, I don't think it was that conscious, you know, I mean, again, I think originality there's some people who are immediately original and you see them and you see someone like Stephen Wright and Stephen Wright was Stephen Wright from like minute one. The first comedian I ever saw in my life. Uh, who's still, I think, one of the great geniuses of stand up. Uh, you are correct. He is a genius. But uh, but there are some people and uh, who are also geniuses and I'm certainly not grouping myself with guys like this, but people like Lenny Bruce and George Carlin and Richard Pryor who had to evolve over time. And they started, you know, Lenny started as an impressionist. So for me, it wasn't that I was consciously looking analytically and saying, this is a formula. It was just the first thing that occurred to me to write was something that struck me based on what I liked. Now, why didn't you continue writing songs and submitting them with, you know, you're 11, you know, uh, from the time you maybe graduated high school, how many other songs did you give to Dr. Demento? Uh, I did two records. So I did that record and I would go around LA to all the independent record stores and they used to do what they called consignments. So you would give them 10 copies of the record. And if they sold them, they gave you the money. If they didn't, they gave you the record back. So they didn't buy them from you. But because it was being played on the Dr. Domeno show, the power of the Dr. Domeno show was they would sell them. They actually would sell them. And I'd go back and say, yeah, we sold all 10. Give us another 10. So I went to and Rhino Records and Aaron's and Go Boy and um, uh, Penny Lane and all these record stores that was we're all around the LA area and of the 500, I probably sold 400 of them and I made Amazing. enough money from that record that it, uh, paid for the manufacturer of the record. And I got a little bit 
you know, extra in my pocket besides. So two years later, I made another record, which was an EP or extended play uh, with six songs. And I did something and I don't know actually how this occurred to me or why this occurred to me, but it was, a, I thought, a pretty original, in hindsight, a pretty original idea for a 13-year-old. Um, one side played at 33 and a third, and the other side played at 45. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, and I just thought for the Dr. Demento show, that would like blow people's minds. It was called Meanwhile Back at the Funny Farm, and um, none of them... None of the songs from that record got any traction, and I still probably have most of them, you know, in a in a big box in a storage facility somewhere. But those were the two records that I made at that time for the Dr. Demento show. But f- from that point forward, the thing that I really got hooked on was the creative process. And when I was 13, 14, 15, I started making, you know, I would say films, but I was starting to work with some of the very early video equipment, which was, you know, half inch sort of, uh, consumer video equipment. So it was, imagine like, essentially shooting on VHS and then cutting deck to deck on, um, on VHS and I started making, I would write scripts and then I would put crews together and, uh, I would shoot and edit movies. And I made my first kind of really ambitious one, excuse me, when I was, uh, 14 was a thing called Groundhog Day and, uh, no relation to the Bill Murray movie that wound up coming out much, much later. This was my inspiration for this at the time was uh, horror movies that all seemed to be um, based on something terrible happening on a holiday. All these, like it was Friday the 13th and Halloween and all of these, and there were some really ridiculous. There was like My Bloody Valentine and Silent Night, Bloody Night. There was all these. So I said, uh, there was no horror movie on Groundhog Day. So I made a comic horror movie based on Groundhog Day, wrote a script, put a crew together. Um, How did you know how to write a script? I didn't. I didn't. I mean, I would get scripts. There was a place called Larry Edmonds Hollywood Bookshop, and you could actually buy scripts from movies and TV shows. So I had read scripts. Um, I remember I still had the script for Mel Brooks High Anxiety. And that I still have that copy of Mel Brooks High Anxiety that he wrote with, I believe, with Barry Levinson. So you studied how it was paginated, how the pages were, and you made your script that way. Yeah. But, uh, but in terms of like structure and storytelling and everything, it was really just um, as as studied or as analyzed as probably my construction of that first song that I wrote for the Dr. Nemeno show. It's just sort of, it was relying on instinctual sort of rhythms of narrative and, you know, scenes needing to lead to other scenes and everything propelling a story forward. Um, and it was also very reliant on the tropes of the genre that I was, uh, I was satirizing, uh, or parodying, I should say. And, um, but what I was able to do was I was able to get some professional actors and some pretty notable professional actors to come and play. Uh, and in fact, Mel Blank, who was famously the voice of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, you know, all the Warner Brothers cartoons, played the mayor of Typicalville, USA, which was the town where 
Groundhog Day took place uh, and did all the voices of all the off-screen characters. So he did the voice of the groundhog and the groundhog's agent. Um, How did you get Mel Blanc to do that? I met him in the lobby of an office building where he happened to have an office. I was having lunch with my dad and um, a guy who was an army buddy of my dad's. And this guy knew Mel because they were in the same building. And he introduced me and I said, you know, I have all these cassette tapes of all these old radio shows that you were on, uh, you know, the Jack Benny show, the Burns and Allen show. I, I collected all of this stuff. I was a real comedy nerd. I was a real, real comedy nerd. And he also had his own radio show called the Mel Blanc show for a few years. And he didn't have tapes of any of this stuff. And I said, I'll make you copies of all of them. So I would make him copies of these tapes and I'd bring them to his office. I'd ride my bike to his office and bring him these tapes and he'd say, let's go to lunch. And he was just really sweet to me. And so I told him at one of these lunches that I was getting ready to make this movie. And he said, is there anything for me in it? And I just kind of like, oh, my God, really? Well, there is now. <laughs> and uh, put him in it. And he was he was unbelievably gracious and kind to me. I, I've really been fortunate that I've met so many amazing people who took the time to be very kind and very supportive um, beyond just like, uh, hey, you know, good luck to you, kid. I mean, people who really said, is there a way I can help you? And he was one of those people. Wow. And you know something? I feel like you're one of those people. <laughs> so take the love, Dan. Thank you, Barry. So take me to the next step. What happens next in your life? So I started making these movies. Um, the next year when I was 15, I was in the 10th grade. I made an hour long documentary about Jack Benny. And of course, Mel was in it. And I got everybody who was still alive that was part of the Jack Benny show to be in it. How and is that possible at 15 that you get the access to the greatest comedians of our generation? Um... My grandmother had an expression, you don't ask, you don't get. I asked. I asked. I cold called a lot of people, and then those people made calls for me. So Frank Nelson, who was uh, the guy, if you know, the Jack Benny show, uh, was the guy who sort of plagued Jack Benny throughout the show where he would go to a department store or a restaurant. He would go, oh, mister, mister. And Frank would wheel around and go, yes. <coughs> Well, I got to meet him, and then he called Dennis Day, who was famously, you know, the the young kid tenor on the Jack Benny show, and he said, "Hey, you should you should be in this documentary that this kid's making," and so people would make calls for me, um, and that helped get me to Fred de Cordova who was at that time the executive producer of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, who I interviewed in his office at The Tonight Show at, uh, you know, in Burbank, at NBC Burbank. And then, um, you know, that led me, because he had also been Jack Benny's producer. And that's really how Fred Cordova got the job with The Tonight Show, was that Johnny was obsessed with Jack Benny. Um, and I got to interview Irving Fine, who is George Burns' manager, but also had been Jack Benny's manager. And uh, I got to have an hour in George Burns' office, uh, you know, at, uh, at what is, I think now, Hollywood Center Studios on Las Palmas. Sat 
for an hour with George Burns talking about Jack Benny. Um, so anyway, I made this documentary. No one has ever seen it because, of course, I didn't know about, you know, clearing the clearing the rights to the clips, which were all, I think, still owned by Universal TV. Um, but I donated all of the interviews later to the Television Academy when I got involved with that project, the, the Archive of American TV. So you can actually see the interviews now. Um, now I'm surprised that, you know, in your career up to this point in your spare time, you haven't taken that documentary and worked on clearing the clips and seeing if you could actually get that out there to an audience that could see it, even if it is 20 years old. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good point. I mean, look, it's, it's, a you know, it's a work of a 15 year old kid. And, you know, my partner on the project is a, a guy I was in high school with named David Latt, who has since gone on to become, you know, a fairly successful producer, um, famously or infamously, depending on your perspective, is the producer of the Sharknado movies. Wow. Um, and uh, we just recently got together in New York and uh, and caught up after many, many years. But David and I were the ones who had made uh, this film, Remembering Benny. But anyway, all of this led me to um, pursue kind of getting inside the gates. I always say, you know, the thing about the entertainment industry is, you know, you're you're inside the walls or you're outside the walls. And at that point, I was still really outside the walls. I was, I was a kid, you know, but I was in L.A. And so my mom, my parents always really um, emphasized work ethic. They were really middle-class Jews who came from nothing and built whatever we had because they were really hardworking people. So when I was 16, my mom said, you have to get a job. And I wound up getting a job as a paid summer intern at Paramount Pictures. And that was the next thing for me, which is now I was meeting people who were really working at that moment, at that time, in the business, and I and I was there, and um, I was just willing to do anything and everything for anyone who asked me on that lot. I got there first thing in the morning, and I was there till you know the security guards were like, "All right, come on, you got to go home. You got to go home." And this is you know what Dan's saying is everything that. Anybody listening should take the heart and listen to you very, very strongly because you need to find that affiliation of some place that you believe in. And if you have a chance to work at, uh, as I say, the diner or the Ritz Carlton, if you're a server, go to the Ritz Carlton. Don't go to the diner. If you're doing a certain thing and you want to do something and you really believe in it, whether you're a, a, a medical student or whatever, don't go to Ed's Hospital. Go to St. John's to do your internship. You know, go to the best person you can. I was walking around last night and um, I went to see a comic who I believe is a genius and I believe is somebody who uh, if he can stay with his legacy and keep it going he's doing something nobody else is doing uh, I feel uncomfortable when I watch him but that's part of his mystique as Jim Jeffries hmm. and there was a young comic around him last night and there's young comics hanging around all different kinds of comics and I said to this comic you're going to hang around somebody 
hang around geniuses hang around people that are doing it well i mean the, the, the way i always say it i agree is uh figure out what you want to do find the person who's doing that better than anyone else in your estimation and get as close to them as you can um that's why i'm here with you <laughs> Likewise, i want it to i want it to rub off on me i want the osmosis to don't say rub off in your hotel room please <laughs> it's creepy enough with this camera over here i feel like Ari, irene cara in fame it's like, <laughs> Trey Jolie, Trey Jolie, Coco. As he unbuttons his shirt, <laughs> one more, one more button, and part of him is going to pop out. But, um, <laughs> but it is kind of creepy because you ask people to come to your hotel room and you're doing the interview, and although you know we're sitting in two chairs and we have a lot of you know good amount of space, there is a king size bed between us and the camera, so it actually looks like we could be in Van Nuys working for Vivid. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, thank God I don't have to shave numbers into his. Back and we can keep going with this interview here. So, so then the next step was you. What you, you just decided? I want to be a stand-up comedian. I didn't decide that at all. And in fact, um, I, it it really there, doing stand-up was the least intentional thing I've ever done. Truly, going to Paramount was very intentional. I was, um, you know, I was attracted to, um, again, just smart, funny, creative people. But so what was happening at Paramount was I was going around and meeting everybody. You know, there was a lot of exciting stuff that was going on. on and the who were some of the people, the executives that were there at that time that are still in the business and doing amazing things that you were around at that point? Anybody? Well, um, I got to, as part of this internship, PA on two movies that summer. The first was a movie called Clue, um, directed by a, a British guy named Jonathan Lynn. And, um, you know, he had done shows like Blackadder in the UK. And I was a real fan of like British comedy. And so, uh, Getting to be around him was amazing, but then getting to be around all the talent that was in that movie, and I got to meet and hang out with, um, and get to you know just be a fly on the wall and watch work people like Madeline Kahn, uh, Michael McKean, who I was a fan of the Credibility Gap even before Lenny and Squiggy, and so the fact that I knew the Credibility Gap, who I knew from the Doctor Demeno show, um, kind of like made him step back. Um, Martin Mull, Tim Curry, you know, uh, Christopher Lloyd, who was on Taxi at the time, uh, Leslie Ann Warren. Um, it was an amazing, amazing cast. And so getting to be around all those Martin Mull, did I say Martin Mull? I mean, I was a huge Martin Mull fan. Again, knew his records and knew Fernwood Tonight. So being a comedy nerd served me well because I was able to, you know, at least, uh, as a kid, have a base of knowledge to understand what these people were about when I walked into that situation. <clears throat> the other movie I worked on that summer, and this really dates me, was Pretty in Pink. Wow. And uh, it was directed by Howie Deutsch. Um, I did a movie with Howie Deutsch. What was the movie? Best Friends Girl with Kate Hudson. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, he's a great, great guy. And this was his first movie. Um, John Hughes at that time was so prolific, he literally didn't have time to direct every movie he wrote. So he would like direct, he was in post on Weird Science and in pre-production on Ferris Bueller's Day Off under his deal at Paramount. So Howie Deutsch was directing Pretty in Pink. 
And this is right on the heels of uh, Molly doing uh, The Breakfast Club. So it was an, an amazing, amazing time but so i got to know some of the casting people at paramount and how did you make your mark how did you what's your perception of how you moved up from intern and pa which is the lowest uh, titled person on the set you're basically just running around getting coffee and doing chores for everybody how did you move up from that there were plenty of pas and plenty of interns can i tell you something because i was 16 i was not concerned with moving up I was really concerned with learning. I really was, um, you know, I was a student, so uh, I I took advantage of it as, a, a, you know, a place of, if I can be of service to these people, then I have the right to ask a question, two questions, three questions. Um, and I used it as an opportunity for inquiry and the reward of inquiry, which is knowledge. So I asked a lot of questions uh, and probably, you know, questions that if I wasn't 16 would be super, super dumb questions. But let me take you to it, if I may, if you no, don't mind. I love this. You have no idea. I mean, and I know it's hard for you to understand how important this is and how incredible your stories are because you've you've been through this lineage of, of great artists and great executives and it's normally when you interview somebody there's a certain singular lane that they're working in that's incredibly inspiring but you came up through this thing and you 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 knew at an early age what you wanted to do and sometimes like I've interviewed people that you know, are in their 20s and 30s. And they're like, I interviewed Susanna um, Makos from Fox, the executive vice president of Fox. And she said that the she really didn't have an understanding what she wanted. And then she was invited into a pitch meeting. And she saw these creative people pitching ideas for television and she said she went back to her cubicle and almost cried because mm. she it was finally the realization that she understood what she wanted to do but you understood well I understood very, I wanted to have a creative life but I didn't know what any of these jobs were yet so the thing that I retroactively came to understand but really was the byproduct of taking a very circuitous path because I've done a lot of different things is that all knowledge is portable and if anything being on the buying side and the selling side and all of the different things that I've done through the course of you know the many years that I've been working is that it actually has benefited me to understand somebody else's job because I got a chance to do it. Um, and so, you know, having been on the network side and now going back to the selling side and being a producer again, it's like you just have that much better of a perspective of what the needs of the network are because you've done that job. But at that point, really, again, I'm a 16 year old kid. I, I didn't have a clear idea of what I wanted to do. I just kind of knew that I wanted to be around it. <clears throat> and I was really sort of figuring out what turned me on the most. And also 
what I could do best. Um, so anyway, I started going to these comedy clubs with the casting people from Paramount. And because I was there with the casting people, I would sit at a table where the comics would sit and come talk to them. And I was watching them and I'd seen a lot of comedians on TV. Again, I was an insomniac. So I watched every comic on uh, not just Carson, but, uh, uh, you know, on Merv Griffin and the Mike Douglas show and the Dinah Shore show, all of these shows when I was growing up. So I knew a lot of them. I knew a lot of their acts. I was able to speak to them, you know, not just about the set I saw them do, but, you know, uh, I remember meeting, uh, a guy named Bobby Kelton. Do you remember Bobby Kelton? I believe I do. He and Rhonda Shear, I think were a couple for yeah. a time, but I'd seen him, you know, on the Merv Griffin show, uh, you know, in like 1981 when he was on with Devo and, uh, you know, talked about, you know, the set that he did anyway. I mean, but I was also you know, a fan of all the, the, you know, the greats that I learned about from the Domeno show. And so, um, so I, I was able to have conversations with these people as a 16 year old kid and started asking questions. And some, on some occasion I would, you'd say something funny or you'd offer somebody a tag to a joke and say, Oh, you know what, you know, it occurred to me if you say this than that. And occasionally people would go, Oh yeah, that's, that's great. That's funny. Can I use that? And I would be thrilled. A comedian wants to say something that I suggested. That was amazing. And then a guy named Jimmy Brogan, Jimmy Brogan, uh, from Massachusetts, one of the most amazing comedians that you would ever see because he didn't have any material. It was it all would, crowd work. It was all crowd work. His license plate literally says no act. Incredible. The guy and, and, and you'd think that he had a Rolodex of material that he used before, but he just figured out a way to come up with stuff. And he never swore. Incredible. And he used to... Uh, well, he grew, he grew up very Catholic, you know, went to Notre Dame. I mean, still is a, you know, is a pretty, you know, observant guy and a very sweet guy. And but became a producer of The Tonight Show for many, many years. Many years. Yeah. He was sort of Jay's go-to guy on the monologue and he booked all the comedians for a long time on The Tonight show but anyway jimmy um pulled me aside and he said you know people actually pay for jokes you should actually get money for this and so he started introducing me to people to um write jokes for them so i started writing jokes for comedians when i was 16 <laughs> and this is incredible dan this is an incredible story so but this is how i got into the stand-up world and and jimmy actually introduced me to jay and i i had no intention of performing but jay would say because a lot of my jokes are written from the perspective of a 16 year old jay would say and he, he was actually very gracious and very kind. He was just starting to guest host The Tonight Show at this time. Um, and he would say, uh, you know, this joke's not really in my voice, but you should do that joke. That joke sounds like it would be most right coming out of you. And so those guys helped, you know, get me on stage. And that's a whole other story of. That's OK. So you did. So you're doing stand up for a while and, and, and doing that in Los Angeles. But so, but this is going to lead to your earlier question. So I started writing jokes for all of these comedians. And one of the guys who was in that movie Groundhog Day that I told you about, uh -huh. this, it was an actor named Olin Soule. It's a great old character actor. Um and if you don't know his name, 
you know, look him up on IMDb and you'll see his face and you'll realize you've seen him in a million things. I mean, he was in North by Northwest and he was on the Twilight Zone and he was a recurring character on Dragnet, you know, Jack Webb's TV show Dragnet and all this stuff for years and years and years on TV. Well, he was kind of like almost like a surrogate grandfather to me. And he really, he was my best man at my wedding. Uh, and, uh, but I got to know him because I asked him to be in this movie Groundhog Day and we stayed in touch and he knew I was writing jokes for people. He introduced me to a guy named Seaman Jacobs. Yes, the man's name, unfortunately, was Seaman. Uh, people called him Cy. But, uh, so, Cy Jacobs was Bob Hope's writer. And by the end of that summer, um, Cy Jacobs invited me to join the writing staff for block and tape on a Bob Hope special. So here I am, 16 years old. I've been writing jokes for a few months. Uh, and now I'm, I am in, I'm inside NBC at the taping of a special called Bob Hope buys NBC. <laughs> and I'm standing with Bob Hope and Lucille Ball. Unbelievable. And I'm pitching jokes. I'm pitching jokes. Unbelievable. And uh, and you're 16. I was 16. And, and were they looking at you like, kid, get away from me? Or were they? I'm sure some people must have. I, 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 if they were, I, I wasn't perceptive enough to be conscious of it. And maybe that, uh, that uh, obliviousness uh, was was the best thing I had going for me because I was I was a kid in a candy store. And I, I can tell you, by the way, a couple of mistakes that I learned in the making of that that I would never make again. Um, but uh, but I just, I was just a sponge and I was just soaking stuff up. And Cy Jacobs introduced me to a man by the name of Brandon Tartikoff. Why don't you talk about Brandon Tartikoff? Well, this is going to lead to the, the the kinds of questions I would ask. Brandon Tartikoff was, at that moment in time, the president of NBC. The youngest president in the history of network television. Yeah, I believe he became the president of NBC when I, I think he was 31. Um, and he was the man who is really credited with creating... You know the the network that became the network to beat. Um, you know the Cosby Show was the show that turned that network around under his watch, and then suddenly, which ABC passed on. Uh, is that true? Yes. I don't think I knew that. Um, Carsey Warner, Tom and Marcy. Right. Who I later a would work for. Were ABC executives and That's they right. left ABC. And as a nice gesture, they their first deal was with Cosby. Uh, they were working above a shoe store in Studio City or something like that. And as a first gesture, they offered it to ABC. And ABC passed. Wow. And NBC did the show. But... Uh, coincidentally, uh, Roseanne, uh, NBC passed on and ABC got, so I guess it all works out. Uh, you know, it proves the thing that Brandon would always say, which is nobody knows everything. Uh, but at the time I'd never heard of Brandon Tartikoff before. So, um, Cy Jacobs says, Dan, I want you to meet somebody. Now, Brandon was kind of a ham. So he was actually playing himself on the special. Uh, and he was a very funny guy. Uh, so he saw me there pitching jokes. So he knew I just wasn't some kid on the set. He knew I was actually there in this capacity. So Cy said, Dan, I want you to meet Brandon Tartikoff. I said, great to meet you. What do you do? <laughs> what do you do? 
What did you say? He said, oh, I'm the president of NBC. I'm like, cool. What does that mean? I'd literally never met a television executive. I mean, literally, I thought you're the president of something. What do you have? Like, you know, a red phone on your desk and you call, you know, other networks and you you know, threaten to bomb them. Like, what do you I don't know what that means. I literally just said, what does that mean? Did, and how did he handle that? He looked at me for a second. I really actually remember this and I really internalized it. And I think he was trying to make a decision of if it was a very stupid question or if it was a smart question. And. To his credit and to my uh, to my great fortune, he decided to answer it like it was a smart question and answered it thoughtfully. And he said, my job is to create the most hospitable environment for the greatest talent to do their best work. That was his answer. And even then I went, wow, cut, paste, save. Dan, you're giving, you're giving out gold. <laughs> It's gold. Hey, what's what's so weird about this is that I've been talking to you probably for whatever, close to an hour, and you're not even out of your teens. <laughs> That's how incredible. I mean, I don't even know. The, your beginnings of your life is like some guy who won an Emmy Award on their first show, and then they got to follow that and go into life. I mean, I don't even know how you're- There were no awards for me, but I was Zelig. Uh, I was Zelig. I was just, I would just pop up everywhere. And- But uh, I mean, I don't even know how you follow that without getting depressed, uh, no matter what. I mean, you've had an amazing career, and we're going to talk about all the things you're, you've done and you're doing, but to me- as great as Portlandia is, it's not going to compare to standing across from Brandon Tartikoff at 18 or 16 years old and getting that piece of advice. It's not going to compare with sitting down with Mel Blanc. It's not going to compare. But you know what? It's all relevant. It's all relevant because the lessons I learned from Brandon were the things that governed the way I would at least hopefully, you know, try to conduct myself going forward because those things resonated with me. The kindnesses that I enjoyed because of people like Olin Soule and Mel Blanc and, you know, uh, all of the people that we've, we've talked about here, Dr. Domeno, um, the people that, you know, decided to treat me as though I was someone worth giving their their, their time to, and even their help to would inform how I would decide to go forward because, you know, I think that, you know, we can talk about, oh, it's a tough business and it's, you know, it's a shitty business and, you know, everyone's going to fuck you over and all that kind of stuff. And I just, I've chosen to go forward uncynically, um, both creatively and as a business person. And I just, I try and surround myself with the people who, who believe as I believe that this, this can be an amazing life to have, to have a creative life, to get to be around these unbelievably brilliant people and get to be somehow a part of, you know, making a dream into a reality. I know it sounds Pollyanna, but here I am 45 years old and 
I, I believe that when I was 11 years old on, on the Dr. Demento show, and I believe it now. It's fantastic. So, you obviously went to college somewhere, and uh, <laughs> I did go to college somewhere. Where'd you go? I went to uh, the USA USC School of Cinema TV. Great. And so then after that, obviously you worked in a number of different companies. So rather than go into the trajectory here, I'm just going to ask you about, you know, a little something about each place you were at and, and, sure. and what sure. your stint was and what happened and just say a little bit about it so we can, because you have so many things I want to talk about. It's like unbelievable. I mean, I don't even know I, we could be here for, for literally seven hours. Whatever you want, Barry. So you, you, it's, you, you worked at Turner Broadcasting. What'd you do there? That was kind of an interesting situation. So I was at Carsey Werner before that. And I was really there in the last days of Carsey Werner. And they were really slowly, bit by bit, shutting the company down. And this is a company that had done Cosby, had done Sybil, had done uh, uh, Roseanne, Third, Third Rock from the Sun, just 70s show, Tom Werner, who's been on the podcast, and Marcy Carsey, and uh, Karen Mandeback. Yes. And they were very, very good to me. And um, I, I, I had this little pod inside uh, Carsey Werner where we were doing kind of alternative stuff. They were doing those big network sitcoms and my role was to do unscripted and sketch and cable and sort of all this other stuff that they were really interested in, but was kind of outside their main book of business. And when they decided to shut that down, I had sold two shows. Uh, so at that time, one of the shows was this, um, reality show that we had sold to ABC, but there were a lot of producers attached to it. It was Bunim and Murray because it was a... I interviewed John Murray for the podcast. Oh, an amazing wow. man. He's a lovely guy. And it was Steve Martin and his producing partner, Joan Stein. Uh, and uh, it was Carsey Werner and it was Mike and, and those guys said to me, you know, there's so many producers on this thing that when they shut down my division, they said, okay, here's the deal. Uh, part of my deal was I had a salary and, and then I would have uh, producing fees uh, in addition for anything that I sold. They said, if you would agree to sort of walk away from this thing, this reality show for ABC, because there's just so many producers, um, we'll give you back this other show. Now, I had done this pilot there for FX. Uh, John Landgraf had just gone to FX, and he's a guy. The that, president of FX. Who, uh, you know, we've just been friends since his days at NBC, and he's a guy I have an enormous respect for. And this was the first half hour pilot that he bought at FX and then ordered a production and then ordered a series. And Tom and Marcy said, if we, if you walk away from this reality show, uh, we'll give you this FX show. And I, they said, you're a producer, you're going to go off and you're going to be an independent executive producer. And so I got to do that. So, so what you're saying is, is that your first, your first credit your first role on television was the highest credit ever given to anybody in television. Well, no, you were an actually, executive producer for, and the first thing you ever did. No, it wasn't the first thing I'd ever done because I'd gotten credits through other companies where I'd no. sort of been inside a company. No, but this is your first thing. But this is my first thing where I'm on my own. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it it was, and it was a it was a great opportunity. And what was the name of the show? It was called Starved. 
And uh, it, uh, and this will show you how things can go one way or the other. Um, John launched, uh, along with his team there, which was Nick Grad and at the time Matt Chernus, launched two half hours at the same time. Our show and another show. They both got, they were both cost pretty much the same thing. They both got pretty much give or take the same ratings. And John had said he wanted to pick them both up, but could only pick one of the two up. The other show was It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> and that show got picked up and we didn't. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> sometimes things take the right turn. Sometimes, yeah. Oops, you, there goes another rubber tree. You're, um, you're exactly where you're supposed to be, but that plays into our cold open. But so anyway, uh, so the way that led to Turner was, uh, so I was out for a couple of years after Carsey Werner out, out on my own and I produced starved. Um, when Peter Liguri, who had been, uh, above John at FX went over to run the Fox network. He had said to a number of the producers that he knew, Hey, I like you. I like what you do. I like working with you. Bring me something. So he said that to me and I brought him a project, um, that he wound up buying in the room and we wound up shooting. So I was producing a, a pilot for Fox. I was doing the series for FX. Um, my friend Paul Provenza and I sold a pilot to Showtime that uh, we sold to Bob Greenblatt that we were writing at the time. So I had all this stuff going on. And in the meantime, my friend Andrew Singer, uh, whose name is important in a number of chapters of my life, uh, who had been my assistant at Carsey Werner, introduced me to a guy at Turner who was looking to create what they were calling at that time a broadband comedy network. And they were based in Atlanta. They didn't have anybody in LA. And they said, we need somebody to sort of be a consultant for us in LA to buy and produce this short form web content. And so while I was doing all this other stuff, that was just a steady monthly check that I was getting from Turner. And so I started developing this web content for them. And, uh, Around, this is 2006, within about 10 weeks, this is everything that happened. Uh, we learned that the, uh, that Starved was not going to get a second season. I learned that the pilot at Fox was not likely to go to series. I learned that the pilot for Showtime was not going to get shot. And my dad died. Uh. All within like a few weeks. In the meantime, the people at Turner had been saying, hey, you know what? Why don't you move to Atlanta and become head of content for this thing, which was later called Super Deluxe? And I was like, I'm a Jew from LA. Why would I move to Atlanta to be in show business? <laughs> but I was having fun and all this other stuff was going on and it just suddenly sort of made sense. It was a thing. It was right there. I was doing stuff stuff that I was really excited about. And, you know, I remember it was the day after my dad's funeral. Uh, I went to Vegas. And if you ever want a surreal experience, go to Las Vegas the day after your parents' funeral. And I was with these guys and they just, they were just so persuasive. They said, come on, just move to Atlanta and 
do this thing. And so I said yes. So uh, the next year I moved to Atlanta and bought a house there and became head of content for this thing, Super Deluxe, which led to a lot of terrific stuff. But unfortunately, uh, unfortunately for me, really, was short lived. And after a year and a half, they pulled the plug on the thing. And there I was in Atlanta with a house I'd bought and my wife and our daughter we had just adopted. And, um, and, uh, before, uh, I knew what was happening. Uh, I was, uh, I was a guy without a job. I mean, Dan, it's like, I, I, I'm speechless because it's like you, you experienced at a young, you know, normally what happens to an artist and I consider you an artist and I consider you a great artist and an executive. Normally what happens is you get the hole blown through you as a young boy or as a teenager. And then you compensate for that by putting everything you can into something and diving headfirst into something and becoming the greatest you can be to overcome that hole. You have a reversal. I mean, you experienced all this greatness early on and then you start having holes blown through you as you're going forward in the business where things aren't working the way you want them to work you're at Carsey Warner it's at the end so you're with the greatest company little production I'm sorry you're with the greatest sort of uh, independent production company of our generation they're closing their doors you go you get a show picked up for FX two chances you know there's 50 percent chance one goes yours gets canceled then your father passes away simultaneously with a with a thing where you're going to Atlanta you move your whole family moving moving and death are the two most stressful things in the business of life and here you are you had to face both of those and I actually and this will if we have time this will come up in the story that exact situation happened a second time to be not too much after that but i will tell you something what well, tell tell what it, it, it's it's a really important thing i think for what this is um which is that as as hard as i took any of these things and and a, a number of them i took very very hard and went to some very dark places personally the thing that i've learned is that in hindsight you can take something that really um, can be valuable to you from every one of these things. And there's no experience that's wasted. And I learned such lessons in graciousness from Marcy and Tom in the way they treated me when I was there and the way they treated me as I was on my way out. Um, and they were very kind to me and they were, and they had tremendous integrity and they are touchstones, uh, for me to this day of how to conduct yourself as a creative person and as a business person. Um, John Landgraf, I still think of as a, as a, as a friend. And I was very grateful for the opportunity and, um, and making that show, uh, helped to, I think deepen my experience and understanding uh, and hopefully skills as a producer. So all of it, 
you know, all, all roads lead to Rome and all you, all, all you have to do is know that all of that experience will hopefully make you smarter and better and stronger if you can just keep pushing yourself forward. Uh, here I was in Atlanta after they pulled the plug on Super Deluxe. And I'll tell you, um, and, and this is maybe a bit more personal than, you know, this forum might um, warrant, but I, I think maybe it is important to say I, I was actually suicidal. I was at a very, very dark place because I had felt that I had failed at this point in my life. And I had a newly adopted kid and I would go into my daughter's bedroom at night and I would watch her sleep until the feeling passed because I had to force myself to consciously um, embrace the understanding that I was responsible for this life that my wife and I brought from Bogota, Colombia into the States. And it's like, I can't do this. I can't take her out of those circumstances and then deprive her of a father that she's never going to get to know. And I did two things, two things that saved my life. Uh, the first thing was I went back to stand up after 16 years, never having been on a stage in 16 years after I'd stopped doing it because I really stopped doing it pretty much after I got out of college. And it was cathartic because I was doing stand up in Atlanta. There's no show business in Atlanta. People who were doing stand up were doing stand up to do stand up. You know what I mean? And it was a very pure creative experience for me. And I helped. It helped me to awaken, reawaken everything that I felt when I was 11 years old and 12 years old and 13 years old and, and got me back in touch with that part of myself, which in the stress and in the um, dejection of being in a city where I really didn't know anybody and uh, feeling like here I am living in a house, you know, that is worth six figures less than I paid for because the real estate market had just cratered simultaneous with Turner pulling the plug on Super Deluxe. And um, I had to find that, that, that joy again, that positivity, that drive again. And the other thing that I did was I determined out of my basement in Atlanta, well, I, I got, I got to go back out there and sell a show, you know? Um, Robin Harris, who was a great comedian, is uh, no longer with us. Um, who some people might remember, he was in the movie Do the Right Thing. Creating Bay-based kids. Bay-based kids. We don't die, we multiply. <laughs> um, he used to have a bit uh, about how people would complain about the job situation. Job situation's terrible, terrible. Job situation's terrible out there. But they'd sit on their couch smoking weed, you know, complaining like that, like they expected there to be a knock at the door, like, knock, knock, knock. Who is it? Job. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I... I always thought about that bit when I thought about it. it's like, okay, you know, you just got to get back out there. You got to do something. You got to make it happen. So I started, you know, schlepping to LA to pitch TV shows. And my friend, Eric Schaefer, with whom I had done the show starved. Um, and I got back together and we pitched the show that not coincidentally, it was about people who were survivors of suicide attempts called gravity. We pitched the show to stars, and um, fortunately for me, stars ordered 10 episodes of the show. 
So I left Atlanta. I went to New York to now executive produce my second show with Eric Schaefer. And while I was in New York, I figured, well, I should meet some of the buyers in New York because when you're an independent producer, you got to also be thinking about what's the next thing. So Stars was producing shows for IFC. And so the Stars people introduced me to the people at IFC. I went into them to pitch them a show. Turned out they were looking for somebody to head development because they were really um, keenly interested in moving into original programming in a much more meaningful way. So what started as a pitch meeting turned into a job offer. Four weeks after I wrapped production on Gravity, I started in January of 2010 in my position as head of development for IFC. Incredible, Dan. Tell me how Portlandia got going. You remember the name Andrew Singer? Yes, I do. Relationships, everybody. Relationships, everybody. And, and that was... <laughs> the classic catsism. <laughs> Relationships, everybody. And uh, that was a great impression. And <laughs> and Andrew Singer was his assistant. His assistant. So all the assistants out there who are listening, who think, hey, am I going anywhere? Is anything going to happen? Do great work. Have your boss have faith in you. Work extra hours. Make him feel safe. And you will move up to the next level like that rocket ship that uh, I talked about earlier. Well, Andrew is just a really bright guy who also happens to be a mensch. Really just a good, good guy. We also have the same birthday, which came out in the job interview when he came over to Carsey Werner. And it was like, it just sort of felt like, oh, of course this guy's going to come work for me. Um, he worked for me for probably a year. And then when my friend Joanne Alfano, who was an executive at NBC, moved over into a position at Broadway Video, Lorne Michaels' company, I called her to congratulate her. And I said, hey, do you need anything? She goes, yeah, I'm looking for sort of a assistant slash junior creative executive. And uh, Andrew had been on my desk. I had someone else as my director of development at the time. And there really was going to be an opportunity to promote Andrew. So I said to Joanne, um, I want you to meet the guy who's working for me, Andrew Singer. Andrew went and got the job at Broadway. And now 10 years later, he is running uh, development for for Broadway video for not just TV series, but I believe for motion pictures as well. That's right. Um, Again, if you can work with geniuses, work with geniuses. Lorne Michaels. Absolutely. Genius. Absolutely. And uh, I'd been at IFC for probably three weeks and Andrew reached out to me and he said, hey, do you like Fred Armisen? Who doesn't like Fred Armisen? I mean, I used to see Fred at Largo and, uh, you know, I had seen Largo him. in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had seen him in this pilot that Bob Odenkirk had done with my friend Scott Ackerman. Uh, next, he had done been in this pilot that they had done for Fox before he was on SNL. So I'd been a fan of Fred's for a while. And I had seen these Thunder Ant videos that he and Carrie Brownstein had done when I was at Super Deluxe. Um, and these were just videos that Fred and Carrie had done really just for fun. And Andrew said, yeah, Fred and Carrie think it's a series. So, uh, Fred and Carrie came into IFC and I brought all my bosses into the pitch. This was so early in my tenure at IFC that I just, I brought everybody into the room 
And there was no Portland component to it. It was really Fred and Carrie wanted to do these two person sort of Nichols and May improvisational sketches. And they said, we want to do like two 11 minute sketches in a half hour. I mean, it was really a very stripped down kind of demo tape version of what the show became. And, you know, one of the things that I've always believed in is you just you bet on really, really talented people. And I said, there's not a show there yet, but I think we can get it there. I mean, it's Lorne Michaels' company. It's, you know, Fred and Carrie. Um, there's a lot of good in these videos. Let's let's develop it. But um, one of the things that I, I'd taken with me from my time at Carsey Werner and then my time at Super Deluxe and into IFC is if you can do things super cheaply, you can take bigger risks. So one of the things I'd advocated for to my bosses at IFC is I said, look, Fred and Carrie are doing this improvisationally. We can't order a script and we can't just have them shoot videos the way they've shot videos. Let's do like a presentation. I said, let's give them this very small amount of money, but really shoot a presentation. So we got them to commit to doing something where we got to get to see it. Cause they said, you're not going to know what it is until you see it. And that was probably my greatest contribution to Portlandia through the process. We, met with Jonathan Kreisel, who I'd known a bit when he worked for Tim and Eric. Um, and uh, he was at the time directing digital shorts for SNL. And he came in and he said, um, you know, we'd really already determined with that first meeting with Fred and Carrie that Portland was pretty important. Fred and Carrie didn't think it was, but Carrie was living in Portland and they shot all these videos in Portland. And Evan Shapiro, who at the time was the president of IFC and Sundance Channel, said, um, he says, I think you should shoot it in Portland and really think about, you know, uh, having it really reflect that culture. Because all those characters felt very specific to, although not exclusive to Portland. And then Jonathan Kreisel confirmed that when he came in and he said, I think Portland is the third character in the show. And through that process with Fred and Carrie and Andrew and Kreisel, this thing that started as Thunder Ant became Portlandia. And we created, you know, in a very collaborative way, a structure. And then they went off and shot it. And... I will tell you that out of that collaboration with Fred Carey and Kreisel and sort of our guidance, whatever that lent to it, um, that pilot that was made for a very small amount of money had put a bird on it. It had cacao. It had the feminist bookstore. It had Kyle McLaughlin as the mayor. It was one of the few pilots or presentations I've ever been involved with where you just went, that's the show. That's the show. And circumstances led to it getting a very quick pickup because it was produced during Fred's summer hiatus from SNL. And if we didn't pick it up quickly, Fred was going back to SNL. And everybody saw it and went, yeah, this is a thing. We should do it. Well, we picked it up in like three weeks, which is record time for certainly for IFC. And we went back into production. We made five more. And the following January, it premiered. Interestingly, I don't know that everybody at the company without sort of naming names and saying, here are the people who believed in it, and here are the people who didn't believe in it. You know, certainly nobody knew that it was going to, I think, blow up and sort of become 
zeitgeisty in the way it did. But the big show we were launching was the Onion News Network at the time, which certainly by anyone's um, logical analysis would have been like the big franchise. Here we were bringing, you know, the the brilliance of the Onion to television. And uh, anyway, so the Onion News Network was the ten o'clock show. The ten thirty show behind it was Portlandia, and the only thing that I can say is because Jonathan Kreisel, who came up with uh, Portland Dream of the 90s, made that video and that video getting out there and kind of blowing up even before the show premiered really helped to give the show the kind of bounce from the get-go that helped I think people see, oh, this is really like a special thing. And so when the second season got ordered, um, we also benefited from the first season being on Netflix. And, you know, I I would say to this day, um, as proud as I am of everything that, you know, I did at IFC, you know, Portlandia became definitional for the network. And, um, because so many people have seen it on Netflix, um, it really became the thing that gave us the permission to do everything that I was fortunate to get to do in my time there after that. But I was really lucky that it came so early in my... It was probably one of the first pitches I took at IFC and one of the first things that we into production that's great all right so we are in the home stretch here so i want to just ask you a couple of word association things because you work with so many people so i'm just going to mention somebody something some project and you just tell me what comes to mind because there's just like i said it's just crazy the amount of things that you've been involved in done milton burl burl was a guy i met when i was doing stand-up um, he was a judge for a comedy competition that I was in in the 80s at a club called the L.A. Cabaret. Do you ever? Yes. Do you remember the L.A. Cabaret? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, and I did terrible in the competition. But Milton afterwards was very gracious to me. And he said, hey, if you ever want to have the lunch, ha- have lunch with me at the Friars Club, just call me over there anytime, you know, come by and have lunch. I called him the next day and we just became friends and then we got to have you know a you know a personal and a, and a professional association later and um you know and then was the first guy I interviewed for the archive of American TV when we started that uh for the television academy back in 96 um brilliant brilliant guy um had you know almost total recall so his memory into his 90s was staggering and he was the history of show business i mean that was the thing about burl is that as a as a kid actor he worked with chaplin you know and you know if you look at his importance in terms of just the history of the medium he was mr television i mean the medium exploded because people were buying these things so they could watch his show on Tuesday nights. Got it. I got to do, I'm going to do a couple more as, as, as quickly as you can. Cause it's just uh, I don't want to take too much of your time. Sure. Uh, Sid Caesar. Genius. Genius. Um, Sid, I got to know uh, a little bit, not as 
personally, as I got to know some of these other guys, um, you know, we put a deal together to make a movie of his life, um, which unfortunately has not gotten made. It, it, it should still be made. But one of the true geniuses of early, early television. And um, yeah, man, I was just honored to, to know even a little. Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart, I first met when I was a kid. Again, geography growing up in LA. Um, you know, when I was in grade school, some of the people that I was in school with were the children of Joan Rivers and Bob Newhart and Don Rickles and Carol Burnett. And, uh, you know, uh, Bob, I've never really worked with other than uh, getting to interview him for the for the TV Academy. But uh, certainly, uh, you know, one of my one of my great heroes, Jonathan Winters. Jonathan was one of my dearest friends. Jonathan, um, who I really got to know through the process of interviewing him for the Television Academy, um, I can tell a lot of stories about Jonathan, and uh, I, I, I sense because we're in the home stretch here, I can't really go too deeply into any of them. Um, but to just say that, uh, you know, his brain made him a genius and somebody I wanted to know, but his heart made him one of the most important people in my life. And um, uh, one of the great honors for me was after his wife passed away, um, John was not doing well. And uh, I don't think this is telling tales out of school because people knew he was, you know, he was bipolar. And, uh, you know, after his wife passed away, they had upped his, his lithium to the point where he got really sick and I was worried about him and I was living in Atlanta at the time and I flew out to California just to see him and went to Santa Barbara and I just said to him just instinctively I said John what's something that you always wanted to do in your career that you never got to do and he said play Babe Ruth I said let's do it so what do you mean let's do it I said I'll put up the money let's write a script for a short you play Babe Ruth and let's make it Let's just make it, you know? I mean, people are making web videos all the time. You know, we can make this thing, and because it's you, we can get it into film festivals. So uh, we wrote a script. I put a crew together. We actually got him a costume. Our costume designer got one of the costumes from the movie The Babe when John Goodman played Babe Ruth. So it's this, you know, wool Yankees uniform that's like an authentic uniform. And... Just It was a one-day shoot, but I got to see Jonathan emerge from his shell, and even when the cameras weren't rolling, he was playing. John loved to play. He always would call me when I was living in L.A., and he was in Santa Barbara. He'd say, he says, Dan, got to come up to Santa Barbara. There's nobody to play with up here. So we'd go, and we'd play. And... Um, he played that day. He played with everybody, and his son would later say that he thought that that day was the day he knew his dad was going to make it, and I think he lived for another four years after that. Wow, that's incredible. And I say that not to like pat myself on the back and like look what I did for Jonathan Winters, but that was the the level of intimacy I had with this genius, and it was my privilege to be able to do whatever I could for him because he, you know, if there's a Mount Rushmore of comedy, his face belongs on it, in my opinion. Agreed. All right. Final questions. Biggest disappointment in show business. 
you know, I don't know that there's a singular biggest disappointment for me. And in a way, I hope I haven't had it yet. I know that sounds ironic and counterintuitive, but through every disappointment, I feel like I've learned things that have helped me do the things that I'm the most proud of. So, um, which leads to my next thing, your proudest moment. Um, professionally, I'll give you a moment that, um, actually it's, this would be the third emotional story. So, uh, forgive me for this. So I, I'll try and do it in, as briefly as I can. Um, you talk about moving and death being difficult things. So I moved from Atlanta to New York when I got the IFC job shortly after moving like later that year, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. She fought it really valiantly, but, um, a year and a half later, uh, I was in California and I would fly out for all of her big doctor appointments and her doctor said, you have weeks. So my mom discontinued treatment and we rented a house, uh, in the desert and I flew out my whole family and everybody in this big house in Palm Springs. I went crazy. I like hired a chef. My mom was like so extravagant. I'm like, mom, if not now, when? Right. So we're in this house in the desert and I get an email that Portlandia got the Peabody Award for the second season of Portlandia. And word was getting out through family and friends that we were in the desert, that everyone was there really to say goodbye to my mom. And people were calling my mom to say goodbye to her. And my mom, I, I told you, my parents were incredibly supportive. My mom was saying, did you hear Danny's show's getting the Peabody Award? And people would say, but Elaine, how are you? And my mom was like, you know, it is what it is. She was so proud. And she was getting such joy from that. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to assume ownership or responsibility for anything I've worked on. I really don't. I'm privileged to work with the people I work with. But my mom's pride in that recognition, that was a thing that I took such pleasure in. To feel that your parents are proud of you is, that's the greatest achievement. You know, to have the people who who love you and who have supported you be proud of you is the greatest achievement. So when you say greatest achievement, I think of that moment. Wow, man, that's just, uh, that's just so, I can't even put it into words. It's just, uh, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I want to ask you the last question and I just, uh, I don't, I don't even know. It's going to like uh, be hard to follow that, but I just, <laughs> but I think for our audience, I think it's important. The, the last thing is everybody loves to know is if you're a young writer or a young executive or a, you know, anybody in the business who wants to get from where you came from humble beginnings in terms of what you are, you had nothing in terms of your, all you had was your brain and your ideas and what you wanted to do to get to the level you're at now. What advice do you have for performers or young executives or people in the business or any business to get to the next level? Um, 
I don't know that my advice necessarily is the advice. I'll just say what worked for me, which is stay pure and stay uncynical. If there's something you want to do, just continue to pursue it. If you get discouraged, you have to push past it. You know, longevity and success, to whatever extent I've had longevity or success, those aren't things that happen by accident. You know, um, there will be periods of time where, like, you have a little success and momentum can kind of pull you forward. But Sustaining that momentum is up to you. And when you lose that momentum, you know, a little bit or even completely, then self-propulsion is the thing that's going to get you forward. And you have to stay pure to who you want to be as a human being and as a creative person. And you have to stay pure to what you want. And I just try and remain really, really uncynical and I try and stay about the work and I, you know, I try to always be really respectful of the people I work with because it is an honor to work with some of the people you work with. And if you meet people who believe differently than you and who have different values or different sort of creative instincts, you know, you have to respect that and you have to understand that nobody is 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 out there with the goal of fucking you they're out there with the goal of furthering themselves i think they're good people there's bad people everywhere everywhere not just this business everywhere and you just don't let that throw you. I, I, I just think of myself as a guy on a bike and it's just, you just keep your head down. You pick your head up. It's like tree branch. Oh, you know, keep your head down, stay focused. What's your goal? What's your purpose? Why are you getting up in the morning to do what you do? So stay pure and stay uncynical. That's, that's what works for me. Dan Pasternak, you are the fucking man. <laughs> this is unbelievable. This is great. So many journeys. Thank you so much for being here. What an honor. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Barry. And as always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. Say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.